Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you hear this voice, you know what time it is. This is Larry Charles, one half of the Game Dev Unchained podcast. And of course, I couldn't do it alone, couldn't do it by myself, had to bring him best friend, Mr. Brandon Pham. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode. This is Brandon Pham. Please welcome our special guest, Scott Rogers. How are you doing, Scott? Oh, I'm doing great, boys. How are you guys doing? I'm doing very well now that you're on this episode, man. I've been looking forward to it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's good to be here. I promised myself that I wouldn't cry, but since no one else can see this, I'm just going to go ahead and cry. So, you know, if I <laughs> sound a little choked up, it's just because... I'm hey, hold sad. it together, Larry. Oh, we sorry, got a quarter podcast. <laughs> so, Scott Rogers, if anyone has seen your LinkedIn or met you personally, they'll know that you kind of have been all over the game industry. You've seen the ins, outs, ups, and downs. And the reason why we're bringing you on the podcast this week is because I took note of the fact that you went to Capcom... Uh, a non-USA publisher, so non-domestic there in Japan, and you brought them your game idea, Maximo, and you got to make Maximo under Capcom, and then you got to make the second Maximo game. Now, a lot of people out there have always thought of Capcom as like kind of an in-house developer. They didn't really even start reaching out to Western audiences for development, you know, uh, that I thought, you know, until late like PS3 days when they did like Lost Planet 3 and all that. But how did this, you know, like, how? How did you knock down that door and, and open up that opportunity is my first question. Well, first of all, um, as, as much as I love your version of the story, Larry, <laughs> that's, not, that's not quite exactly how it worked. Okay, okay. Uh, so, first of all, uh, Maximo, um, it was the, actually the brainchild of a fellow named David Siller. Okay. Uh, David Siller was the creative director of Capcom what eventually became known as Studio 8 at the time. Okay. Dave had a, a long history of uh, game development. He um, he created uh, Arrow the Acrobat. He helped create Crash Bandicoot, uh, lot, uh, Rygar, a lot of other uh, games. He had been in the industry for a very long time, worked at Ocean and that, and a fantastic guy to work for. And uh, and, that, and Maximo was actually his brainchild. Oh, okay. I, I say that Maximo has many fathers, uh, but uh, Dave is is the reason Maximo exists. Okay. And so Dave was working at Capcom uh, and uh, himself and uh, another fellow who was my uh, mentor in the game industry, a fellow named Bill Anderson. Uh, they had actually been working on Maximo for about a year, actually, before I, I came into the picture. Okay. Now I, while I'm uh, associated with Maximo, um, uh, it's, you know, I can't take all the credit for it. Um, and you know, like in any, uh, any video game project, right. There's lots and lots of really creative and talented people yeah, involved so. in it. So I gotta, I gotta give credit where credit's due. Right. Well, honestly, thank you for collect, uh, correcting me on that. Cause I was going to have the whole audience believe in that, uh, you're responsible for the brown haired and heart shorts, uh, warrior that was killing <laughs> all the skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did, I did help bring him to life. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so uh, I had been working um, at Namco uh, up in the Bay Area, Santa Clara, that area, uh, and I had been hearing about uh, Maxima, which originally was a uh, N64 game, mm-hmm. I think, or a GameCube game, one of the two, I forget which, probably a GameCube game about that time, and um, and they were things were going along, but it but it wasn't. Um, there were still a lot of changes being made, mm-hmm. and uh, and Bill. Uh, was like, hey, you know, um, uh, we got this game. We really could use you. Uh, I was, I was kind of on my way out at Namco. I had done Pac-Man World and a Miss Pac-Man game, and um, wanted a change of uh, of scenery, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, and so I uh, came on board, and um, eventually ended up uh, being the lead game designer. So that's probably part of the reason why everybody uh, associates me so closely with Maximo. Yeah. Uh, so I, I um, did a lot of stuff for it, um, but when I got there, uh, his name 
uh, his his visual. We had um, the great cover artist of Famitsu. Uh, um, why am I blanking on his name? Matsushita. Uh, he uh, Susumi Matsushita. He uh, had, was doing the character designs, um, but not everything was done. Uh, when I got there, uh, levels still needed to be designed, bosses, enemies, uh, a lot of Maximo's abilities, uh, things like that. And so I worked with uh, Bill and the team, uh, and uh, and that's how we uh, started Maximo Roland. We, 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 and at that point, they just decided to uh, make Maximo a PS2 game. Yes, that's where I was uh, introduced. Uh, yeah, so, so originally it was, a, like I said, a I think it was a GameCube game or or N64. It might have been N64. Uh, so this was uh, late uh, late 90s, uh, 90. I want to say like 98 or somewhere around there, 99 maybe. Um, and so uh, so I came in and uh, and started uh, helping Maximo come to life. Awesome. And uh, I'm assuming you had to do a lot of traveling overseas to be a part of that project as well, correct? Yeah, I uh, I already had a lot of experience when I worked for Namco. Okay. Uh, I would go out to uh, Japan maybe three times a year uh, for a couple of weeks at a stretch, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, got got pretty um, comfortable. Uh, uh, Yokohama is essentially uh, uh, Namco is a big presence uh, in Yokohama, which is a, a district uh, just kind of south of Tokyo, mm-hmm. and. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, uh, I was, I, I don't speak Japanese, but I could fake my way pretty well, uh, <laughs> you know, ask where the bathroom was or where I could get some gyoza, things like that. Oh, nice. And, uh, Brandon, you just recently went to Japan. Would you do that trip three times a year? What? Cause I, I'm uh, sure you're dealing with the, <laughs> for work, <laughs> uh, Japan was fun, uh, but crazy jet lag, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, a long- it's a long commute to work, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely a different type of culture. And I can see the fun of it. I mean, you're going to the heart of game development, which is, uh, you know, the, the original video game scene is from Japan. So, I mean, I don't know what that part is like. And that must have been exciting to, to see how, yeah. how they work over there. I mean, what, what are the main differences that you saw or you came in with expectation but completely got swept away with what how they do things over there uh one one of the things is um because space is such a premium uh in japan Mm. uh everybody is working shoulder to shoulder Mm. um at at namco and at capcom um the uh you know even the execs i think the the most space uh anyone had was the guy who was running the you know essentially the the creative director of the of the studio and I think he had like just enough room for like his table and a chair, mm. and everybody else was kind of just right on top of him. Also, uh, now I don't I don't know if this has changed um, since I've been there, uh, but uh, everybody used to smoke like crazy, right, and yeah. uh, and so they had like this one. I was at Namco. I remember uh, <laughs> there was everybody was smoking away in the building, and and I'm like. Uh, they were like, we put you in the non-smoking section, Scott, which essentially was two seats away from the guys that were smoking. Uh, it's just so they were like, you know, there was there was really no difference between the smokers and the non-smokers. So I never smoked, so I I just breathed in a lot of secondhand smoke from uh, Japanese guys. Oh man, my question for you is, and I don't want to come off as like very ignorant, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's a very interesting question. I've always felt like the Japanese culture is just a very proud culture and very strong, you know. And so you as the Westerner kind of going in before like those doors, I felt like were commonly open. Did you ever find that you had to like really prove yourself or that people were second guessing you or like, you know what I mean? Like really making sure that you were put through the paces before you were just like accepted on, you know, first name basis or even like what you say they just trust right away. Were there any uh, discrepancies or issues with you coming on board and not being Japanese? Oh yeah. It's, I mean, even, well, you know, it, yeah, absolutely in Japan. I mean, it's, there's, you know, I don't want to say that there's a discrimination against Westerners, but there's definitely, you feel the, the separation between being from the West and, and dealing with, um, you know, guys from Japan. Now that said, um, 
the guys in Japan, particularly the guys in production, mm-hmm. uh, they would go out of their way to really make me feel welcome. Matter of fact, I, yeah. I have really fond memories of um, some of the trips that I took to at Namco in particular, uh, where um, the guys that were all the producers and the art directors and guys like that, they would get really excited about bringing me to all these very Japanese places. I remember one night uh, they took me to this um, – because none of them, well, they they would drink. Drinking is also a very uh, yeah. common thing in Japan. Everybody drinks there. They all smoke and they Insane. all drink at least back in, yeah, like like crazy men. And uh, and the thing is, I'm not much of a drinker. Um, yeah. So they would try to they try to get me drunk first, and then when I kind of let them know, well, I'm, not, I'm just not a, I, I I can drink. I you know, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm no lightweight, but it's just not my thing. I I just don't really enjoy it. And so when they found that out, they made a really um, a strong effort to find other ways to um, entertain me. And I remember uh, one time they took me to this um, – it was like a French dessert restaurant where everything was like pink. It looked like, it looked like Hello Kitty had thrown up all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, and so they were – uh, ordering all these very fancy French desserts, and the the guys that were preparing them would come out and kind of make them in front of you, and and all I've never seen so many um, adult men get so excited over dessert before in my life. They were ooing and aahing at everything this uh, these cooks were doing, uh, but it was really fun. It was a real memorable experience, and it was it was really nice that they. Um, kind of respected the way I, I felt about things and made an effort to make me feel more comfortable. <laughs> just right when you said they brought you to a really pink room, it was like, I just thought, like, this is where we bring men who don't drink. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is what you think. Yeah, but yeah, like, the- Japan is like, their hospitality is unmatched. Like, yeah. they're very great on that. And uh, another thing that I've noticed is that Japanese, uh, they work extremely hard. Oh yeah, I think that's probably why they drink and smoke all the time. <laughs> but yeah. did you feel any yeah. of that pressure, like their working ethics uh, and no, their I subordination mean, I, and everything like that? Like they, I, I, well, the way they treat their boss. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The the subordination was interesting to see. Um, you know, um, also um, the well, I, I, you know, I, I worked uh, for some big companies in the late '90s and early 2000s, so. Like the long hours, and I mean, you're in Japan. There's really not uh, much else for you to do anyway if you don't speak the language. And so we we worked really hard. Um, and I remember um, one situation uh, in particular where the producer uh, of Street Fighter, one of the Street Fighter game. Oh no, it was Tekken. Sorry, it was one of the Tekken games. Uh, was talking about how. He had worked his animators so hard that they had ended up in the hospital. Jeez. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I was torn because on one hand, you know, they did a wonderful job. Those, those cinematics in Tekken were amazing. Yeah. Uh, but that said, they, nobody deserves to end up in the hospital because of working so hard. Man, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's changed. I, you know, my gut tells me probably not so much. But at least here in the U.S., there's um, definitely a culture kind of growing that, you know, that kind of um, – it's one thing to work hard. It's another thing to work people to, you know, to illness. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we'll see some culture shifts. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely challenging when you uh, are ready to go at six and they look at you as if – It's only lunchtime. What are you doing? Yeah, well, yeah, they're starting to eat lunch. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like what are you doing? So like, I can see that clash being very different if you were to work over there. Even now, like I, I can see them working all the time still. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fortunately, I was only over there a couple of weeks at a time, so you know, a couple of weeks of that is okay. But yeah, I don't think yeah, I don't think my health would have held up very well under a, a constant. It's bad enough I was getting it in the U.S., but. Right. To be over in Japan with all the smoke and the drinking and the mm. and all that, I think it would have really exacerbated, uh, you know, bad health. Man, yeah, I hear you. Well, you'll definitely be a smoker or a drinker if you work longer. <laughs> Just end up picking those habits. Yeah, no, they're not good. Kids stay off cigarettes. <laughs> Seriously. Um, question for you now is: 
What about the cuisine differences? Uh, you know, traditional crunch food as a game developer in America, pizza, you know, anything that you can buy cheap and, you know, cover a whole table with. Uh, right. What else do you get? Like, you know, catered Lots meals. Of Chinese food. Chinese food, yeah, exactly. What are, like, the top three, I guess, catered dishes for crunch food in Japan? Or is that even part of game development culture over there? No, not not really. I mean, I mean, there is crunch, but not the um, we're going to feed you. Gotcha. Uh, that de- that definitely was not something I encountered. Now maybe going out and getting drinks afterwards, sure, but gotcha. but definitely not the uh, we're going to buy you dinner. Mm. Um, and if they did, I, I I usually remember it more for it usually was something that happened more for meetings with management than anything else. They would bring in you know little sandwiches or something like that. Um, it, it was always kind of hilarious when they were trying to cater to American tastes. <laughs> um, but, but part of the, the bummer is I'm not a big fan of like sushi and things like that. So, uh, usually what I would do is I would grab, uh, one or two of the creative directors that I work closely with and we'd run downstairs and there was a, um, there was a place that did really good katsu curry, okay. uh, you know, like a, a chicken or a pork, pork cutlet. Yeah. yeah. With, uh, some curry on it and, uh, you know, a little minced up pickled onions and stuff like that. And, yeah, that was that was some good stuff. Nice. Um, you know, usually it was like, what can we eat fast? And and uh, uh, they eat very fast in Japan. Like the, yeah. it's either it's either you're there for hours dining or you're you've got to wolf it down in seconds. You know, it's like there's no in between. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, so so like lunches, uh, I remember, you know, them if we went more than a half hour, everybody started getting really nervous. And so we would try to get back <laughs> back to work. Yeah, they have like this whole street by the subway where all the restaurants are standing and eating restaurants. Like yeah, you're yeah, not was, allowed to sit down. Right. Yeah, I I remember um uh, n- not a huge culture shock because I actually enjoyed it, but I remember the first time I was there, um I asked uh, uh my essentially I had a fella there that was kind of my guide to make sure I got to and from the offices without, you know, anything horrible happening. And um, and there was a noodle truck that we would just go out for breakfast, and it took a little getting used to eating uh, noodle soup for breakfast, but uh, mm-hmm. it's not bad, you know, okay. it's doable. It, it's yeah. no it's no pancakes, but you know. Sure. Um, is there any one thing that surprised you the most about your experience being there? Like, wow, these guys really love you know McDonald's, like they treat it like it's a five star restaurant or anything like that. Worth Actually, the thing. The thing they love more than McDonald's, I don't know if it's still true or not, but was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, man. Really? That was uh, – yeah, yeah. And matter of fact, um, I was there once during Valentine. it was like Valentine's Day or something like that. And uh, they were all telling me that their tradition was to go to KFC and get a big bucket of chicken for Valentine's Day. Oh, man. I these thought that are, was hilarious. These are my people. <laughs> <laughs> well, they I even have – yeah, they even have like statues of Colonel Sanders out in front of the restaurants. Yeah, he's very. He's a good very thing popular. to note. Yeah, a good thing to know about these fast food chains. It's completely different over there. Like their menus yeah. are different, and the way they cook them are very different. It's like it's healthier. Like it's still food over there. It's, it's I guess food. less oil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's and, still and, yeah, it's still food. And it depends on the restaurant. Like uh, the only place I've ever seen a hot dog at McDonald's was in Japan. Mm. No, gotcha. very different menu options. <laughs> so another fun question for you, Scott, is while there, did you ever have any run-ins with you know some of the more you know notable or notorious uh, Japanese game designers or game developers? Well, um, yeah, I, I, funny. I thought you were going to ask me something else, but I'll, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you my best uh, game designer story, okay. uh, which was when I was at Namco. Um, so in Namco, uh, like I said, the offices, the the seating arrangements, everybody's very uh, close in, and what whatever spaces aren't filled with uh, employees working at desks are usually filled with giant stacks of paper and other um, usually flammable looking objects, uh, or or file cabinets with stuffed with said flammable objects. And uh, they were giving me a tour of the arcade division, which – so in Yokohama, uh, Namco used to be in like a, a big skyscraper. I'm sure they're probably still there. Uh, and uh, and like ro- floors like 
I don't know, like three and four are the arcade group and five and six are the console group. And, mm-hmm. and you know, then the top floors are the management and the lower floors are warehousing and stuff like that. And so I was on the arcade floor and they were giving me the grand tour and uh, and they walked me over and there was this little fella sitting behind his desk. And I, I'm sorry, I totally blank on what his name was, but they said, oh, this is uh, so-and-so son. Uh, he is a uh, you know planner, which is the Japanese term for a game designer. Okay. Uh, he's been a planner with Namco for a very long time, since the 70s. And I'm like, oh, it was very nice to meet you. And I, you know, he didn't speak any English, and all this was being translated. And I was, there was a lot of um, uh, nodding of head, bob, you know, bowing and and handshaking and all this. And I asked my translator, I said, well, what games did he work on, you know? And he, and um, and the translator said back, oh, uh, this fella, he um, he invented uh, Galaga. Oh. And I went. Holy crap! That's like a that's an amazing game. I go. That's I was giving him very deep bows. I'm like, that's a great game. I, was, I played it so much when I was a kid. And the the planner, the fellow, was like, wait a second. Why he like kind of put his hands up? Like, wait a second. Wait a second. And he runs back to his desk, and he pulls out and comes running back over to me with these this handful of like yellowed sheets of paper, mm-hmm. and on this paper is handwritten the original designs of Galaga. Wow. So. So I'm like looking at this is like looking at the Constitution for yeah, yeah. arcade, you know, designers, right? Yeah, it was really amazing. I was like, and and the whole game was there. It was all there on paper. You know, it's wow. just all they did was just put it in the game. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty awesome. Wow, that's cool. That's and good I hit him on the head and took him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I started my collection. That's right. He was small enough that I took him too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, he story. lives under my sink. Yeah, no, he's. It was really cool. Um. Yeah, so you know these these you know there's all types of uh, I, I've met a lot of other really interesting guys, but I, ironically, um, the more famous game designers usually I meet in the U.S. Mm. at like E3 yeah, or you know meetings sense. and stuff like that. Yeah. So usually they're coming over to you know talk business rather than us going on their home turf. Good. So did you have a, a cool fan story uh, about your experience there? You know, uh, not necessarily you for someone else, but maybe someone coming to you. Uh, or even in your career, like, oh, you worked on, you know, Time Crisis? Oh, I love that game. You took all my <laughs> damn money at the movie theater. <laughs> Which uh, you did, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, <laughs> the uh, the closest um, I had to that, um, I mean, when I, I used to do a fair amount of lecturing and stuff like that. So once in a while when I, um, you know, was at GDC or something like that, I'd get, you know, folks coming up to me and saying oh yeah you know i like this game that game whatever but my um my favorite one was i think i was at like i want to say i was at like universal studios one time this was back in like the i don't know the early 2000s or something and uh some guy came running up to me and for a second i wasn't sure what he was going to do and he's he was like oh my god you know you you worked on Maximo, and I was like, "How does this guy know I worked on Maximo?" <laughs> and uh, and he's like, "I love that game. I played it to death. I, you know, I love the sequel. Blah blah blah." Spent like about a half hour telling me about how much he loved Maximo, and then as he, you know, I said, "Thank you very much for buying the game, and you know, thanks for being a fan, and that's awesome." And 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 then he went on his way, and I realized I was wearing my uh, team jacket, <laughs> uh, which had the big logo on the back. So I. Uh, so that's how he knew. I was, I was. I guess I was advertising. Nice. <laughs> well, here's what I'd like to do. Let's uh, let's bring it back to the Maximo experience and developing in Japan. Because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, and I guess it kind of changes a little, but you didn't start out as the lead game designer for you know Maximo. You you kind of nope. worked your way up and got into that position. So sure. A lot of people who listen to this podcast may not have design aspirations, but maybe creative direction or, or something along the lines of like executive level, you know, developer. Uh, how exa- like are there any tips or advice that you have for like planning those stepping stones, or is it more like I'm just the best firefighter and I ended up there? You know, like what's your honest approach if you were maybe in Larry Charles's shoes who wants to step up a couple of rungs? I don't know, Larry. You're pretty far up the yeah. ladders. <laughs> like, uh, um, 
Well, all I can all I can do is relate my own experience, kind of how I got there. Okay. Uh, and that was I I actually started in the industry as an artist. Uh, so I spent a couple of years doing uh, animation and art, and this was way back in the 16-bit days. So I did SNES games and Genesis games and okay. computer games, things like that. And um, there kind of was a point where. Um, I I've told this story a few times, but I I heard the designers yucking it up in the cubicle next to me, and <laughs> I poked my head over the wall and went, "Those guys look like they're having more fun than I am." Mm. Uh, and and remember, this is back in the day of you know pixel art, so uh, there's a lot of a lot of um, work to actually make something look like something back then. Yeah, yeah. And, and I and I kind of realized that my talents were better suited for. Um, coming up with ideas rather than just drawing them pixel by pixel. Yeah. So I, I kind of marched over there and I said, look, um, you know, I, how do I get more involved in this? How do I, how do I become a game designer? And unfortunately I had somebody, uh, take me under their wing. That was, uh, Bill Anderson, who I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he kind of, we traded, essentially we traded, uh, I drew stuff for him and he, um, taught me about game design. Oh, and uh, so I illustrated his his um, maps, his level design maps, and I drew storyboards, and I designed characters, uh, and um, and kind of I, I you know as he worked, I kind of learned by osmosis because there were no schools, there were no books, um, it was just all hands on experience, and so I just kind of kept trying to get myself more and more involved, and and say well I can help with this, I can help with that, let me let me try this, let me try that, and. And um, and then eventually, I think kind of the big break came where um, I, I had gone to school. Um, I have a couple of degrees, but one of them is in screenwriting. And so I, I know how to write, uh, you know, uh, stories and screenplays and that. Mm-hmm. And um, and somebody needed a story written. And I said, well, I can do that. I, I have a degree in it. And so they gave me a shot and I and I wrote it. And I, then I became known as the guy who uh, would write the screenplays. And so. My first official uh, non-artist job—I mean, it is a type of an artist—was uh, as a writer. That's okay. actually what I started at Namco at. It was as a writer, uh, but then I very quickly moved into uh, game design because uh, more and more game design type responsibilities fell in my lap, um, and then eventually I just was like a full-blown game designer before I knew it. Oh, I like that. What's, what's very interesting with your stories? A lot of t- I teach too on on the side, and a lot of the students um, I feel uh, kind of just go for, in a way, respectfully. They they know what they want to do, um, but it's just so competitive for the position they want to do. It's very unrealistic to to go into a job uh, industry uh, in the game industry for that position. Like for example, right. artists. Yeah. There's a lot more jobs for artists than there are for most other disciplines. Right. Um, maybe as a programmer, but like if I want to become a rigger and I'm I'm graduating from school, it's very difficult for me to get that one rigging job because most companies, as you know, maybe have two riggers, yeah. maybe one mostly. Even the right. big companies have only even the big one. companies. Yeah. yeah, and and it's always it's never quite a dedicated position, right? Like that rigger right. is. Doing other stuff as well yeah yeah and uh it's i think you know i think when we come in we have a lot of different things that we'd like to try and it's always good to have a focus on what you do so like i feel like the balance is always like all right if you want to become a rigger maybe become an animator first and then become a rigger like something relatable to rigging but give you a better chance at actually getting your foot in the door. Mm. And I feel like with that, uh, most of the time, when you're neck actually in the industry, you have a job and you're next door to that discipline that you've always wanted to do, it's a lot easier to get in when you're in. Yeah, And I still see it happening all the time. Like, especially, uh, I'm an environment artist by trade, and I see it all the time when environment artists um, want to become a character artist, for example. Mm. It, very difficult to get in day one from character art, student to character art professional. But as an environment artist, you're doing props, right? You're doing props anyways. It's very similar. 
you go over to the character team and it's like, hey, I do characters on the side, check it out. It's a lot uh, easier as a transition um, than than doing it from scratch. Yeah. I, I wonder, if, like, this is a question for you guys. Is like, is there something like that for designer? Because um, I know designer is, I mean, it's starting to change where you can start getting entry level design, but like, it's still, I, for me as an outsider, that roadmap isn't so clear if you're a student and trying to get in. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I. So I've been teaching for the past year. Uh, and so I'm, you know, getting a lot of kids that are coming out of school and they're, you know, how do I get into the industry? And a lot of them, a lot of them think, well, testing is maybe the best way to do it. And testing isn't horrible. I don't, I don't want to knock it as a career path, but I, the thing that I've noticed at least over the years, you know, maybe it's changed since, uh, you know, um, but the testers are very, are are kind of a different class than the production people. And so I feel that testers may not get as good a shot at things as, um, as production folks are. So my, my advice is, you know, even particularly if you're a student or, or a young, you know, person getting into the industry, um, go for the internships. I would go for an internship, you know, as a production assistant or a, or a, you know, a associate, you know, designer or associate artist or whatever. Just it, it's better to be around the team than to be kind of adjacent to them, right? Like mm-hmm. like the testers are kind of adjacent. They're not not everybody on the team interacts with those people. But if you're there kind of busting your ass and and they see that you're working hard and you're like hey i i can write that screenplay i can you know i can uh draw that texture for the effect i can you know help rig that model um then uh people go oh well maybe we should offer this guy a a, a more lasting position well actually that's really good advice i didn't even think of about before is like you know go for that internship you know that's really cool I bet you there's a lot of testers now who are going to be like, "Screw this internship." <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's hard, you know. It's it's hard to get in. I mean, it's yeah. I'm not going to lie. It's it's not easy. Um, you know, even you know, even myself, this this you know, having a lot of uh, years of experience, it's still not easy to always get into places. Yeah, and uh, you know that that golden rule of start in testing is still preached all over. You know, so yeah. That's actually a really cool strategy of go for the internship. Now, you know, it, it may be hard, though, because a lot of entry-level like type people are like, well, internships are usually free. You know, and yeah. I need the money. So, whew, Well, then go for, somebody, go for someone who pays you because, yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely of Scott, you there? the opinion that um, work needs to be paid. I, I, yeah. yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that, um, I don't think you should do your work for free. Uh, you know, no matter how low you are on the totem pole or how starting out you are, um, you need to get paid for your work. Yeah. Uh, because it's too, it, there's too many people in the, particularly in the game industry that are like, well, look, you know, you should just be happy, you, you know, you're here. And I've, I, you know, I, I've heard that many times over my career, no matter how far yeah. up the pole is. And to be honest, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, I don't really need to be working for you anymore. You're, it's not – I want you to appreciate what I can bring uh, and, and the skills and abilities and the knowledge that I have. Yeah. I don't want you to kind of hold lord this over my head that, you know, that you're here at this great job and we're going to take advantage of you because everybody else thinks it's such a great job. But, Scott, do you know how so much just exposure be, we can put in your bank account? Just be, <laughs> how much what? How much exposure we can put in your bank account? What do you mean? <laughs> well, that's the joke. It's, they say it's going to get that's you That's the exposure. sales. <laughs> like, hey, we can't pay you, but you're, you're going to be known as that guy who worked on this game. Yeah, yeah you'll free. be known as the guy who didn't get paid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, don't, don't be that. All you listeners out there, and, and even you too, you know, but you guys have been in there for a while. You should, you should never uh, do work for free unless – Unless you, you know, like it's for your mom or something, right? And yeah. that's okay. But yeah, yeah, don't don't sell yourself short, right? That's that's the yeah, message. that's the key thing right there. Don't sell yourself short. I mean, if you you put your price you, at the beginning of your your career, especially, right? You're putting your price on your work, and if you start right. too low, then you're just 
cascading that low number to whatever is your next job is. So at the same time, too, like I'm sure at school events, at graduation, beware of some of those companies that come to your graduation <laughs> offering yeah. these jobs because <laughs> they are looking at the bottom of the barrel and give that type of price. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, they do want- you guys have any advice for that? <laughs> I see it yeah, all the time. Work- don't work for those people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's it's better to – I mean, ultimately what really matters uh, is that you do good work. Uh, and, and more importantly, uh, I mean, this is tough, but try to do work that um, – try to get work that gets you recognized. I mean, Larry, you said at the beginning of the, of the hour, uh, you know, hey, I was checking you out on LinkedIn – well, it's the one thing that I'm really proud of. I think I look really good on paper. Yeah. Uh, and and to be honest, a lot of that is very calculated. Um, I was very mindful of who I worked for and what projects I worked for. And, and um, you know, sometimes I turned down some very big games, uh, but because I didn't think they would be right for my resume. Mm. Or I even, I even I've turned down like, like companies that I thought might even be a better fit for me. Um, personality why like I you know people that I'm still really good friends with but I was like well this unfortunately the games that you're working on are not going to be as good for my resume as maybe some of these other ones now now it's funny because I kind of told my class uh, this the other day and they all gave me this very sour look and they said yeah but Scott your resume is awesome what are we supposed to do you know we're just (laughs) starting out and so the so the, the advice I gave them uh, is that then you find ways to make your resume look good. You get involved with, you know, programs or make your own games or, you know, go volunteer at Indicate and be involved with that if you live in L.A. or whatever the other, you know, the version of that is near where you live or, um, make you know, just do whatever you can to kind of bulk up your resume because ultimately you just want to get people's attention and show that, look, you love games and you're working on games and you're constantly doing stuff. Yeah, that's good. I, I have to say my resume, as long as it really is, like I definitely curate and like, oh, like yeah. uh, they don't need to know about that job anymore. Like it's, uh, <laughs> These are the strong companies, so this is my resume now. <laughs> that's the nice part. Like I'm actually – yeah, have well, something you'll, now you'll, to edit with. <laughs> Before, like as a student, like you're scraping for any. I was uh, I, I a worked lead in the games of aisle this. at Blockbuster. Yeah, that well, you'll, you'll I was notice manager Larry that at, <laughs> yeah, at the library. What'd you say? Yeah, Scott? exactly. Well, but you know, there's there's something to be said about some of those jobs as well, right? It lets you know that um, there's a certain level of responsibility that you're willing to take on. But that said, they should drop off. Uh, as soon as you get better credits, drop them off and, and you know, uh, weigh, weigh it towards uh, those better ones instead. Yeah. My, uh, one of my family members also always said, keep your shiny buttons at the top and your tarnished buttons in the box. <laughs> that's great. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great bit of advice. Yeah. Uh, I heard a similar thing, not as uh, pithy as that, uh, <laughs> about, uh, Pablo Picasso. Well, we've just, we've just seen this with Prince, oh. right? Where Prince has a vault of, you know, thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of songs that he recorded, but he didn't think they were good enough. Mm. Uh, Picasso, the famous, uh, painter, Supposedly, he had a castle in Europe that was just filled with paintings that he didn't think was good enough. Mm. Um, Japan, I mean, as I, I teach in my history class, the reason why we as Americans think Japanese were like the best at making games is we only saw their good stuff. We never saw their garbage. Mm. Wow. man! So, they, yeah. They have real so, business people over there. If they can say, oh, screw it, time and money. No, it's not good enough. Scrap well, it, it was everything. It, well, it's it's more about just like you said, putting your shiny buttons up top, yeah, right? right? Putting your putting your best foot forward, and and you know, um, there's nothing wrong with a little self editing as long as you're not um, manipulating the truth to to be lies. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah, I was the the lead coordinator of fun logistics. Like, oh, you were a game designer. Like, oh, <laughs> uh, cool. So going back to the Maximo, because I promised that we would talk about Maximo and your experiences there. 
Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges, I guess, in doing the, I don't want to say liaison because you were there for three weeks at a time, but like, you know, the, the developing in the U.S. and then developing overseas, you know, what were like, I'm sure there was language barriers, so you had a translator, but what was that experience like, just getting through all those hurdles and still shipping an awesome product? Well, the, the irony was uh, there weren't a lot of hurdles Okay. because I, th- I think that the Japanese originally thought we weren't going to make anything that good. Oh, uh, and, and, awesome. And it, I love and that it, supervising. Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't until we started getting attention from the press and we started getting uh, – um, uh, you know, things were starting to get close to release uh, that they realized, hey, um, this is something good. And uh, and so then we started to hear the feedback. But at that point, you kind of just have to, you know, it, it's this fine balance between digging your feet in and sticking up for what you've created mm-hmm. and, you know, having to keep your boss happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there were there were several tense discussions about certain things and, and all that and things that they didn't quite understand but if you there's a there's a trick that i learned from the japanese uh which is um you just kind of uh repeat yourself over and over again and so uh they will um they will just keep hitting you know if they don't like something if they say oh i don't like the color of that rock they'll say i don't like the color of rock and you say well but the color of that rock you know it fits in nice with the world and that and then and then you you think you're done to explain and then they'd say yeah but i don't like the color of that rock and you're like well you know the rock is blah 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 and then they'll be like i don't like the color you know they'll just keep hitting on it and hitting on it and hitting on it so after a while um i kind of gave it back to them as good as they uh, as they gave it you know so you just kind of you just gotta, you know, you just gotta pick your fights. You've just got to um, stick up for what you feel is for the good of the game, and 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 let them know that that's why you're you're not doing it to be difficult. You're doing it because certain things have proved out, and you know you live with the game. You know it better than anybody else. You know, at one point in the in the production process, you are the world's best player of this game, and so you need to. Um, you need to let them know that, but conversely, you also need to be open. For, if you hear something enough times, you do need to address it because then it, you you should realize that it's a truth, right? And there's there's a phenomenon that I call designer blinders. That if you're working on something for too long, you 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 kind of play a game the way it's meant to be played, and you forget what it's going to be like for everybody else because all those other players are going to be playing it for the first time they're they're all nobody plays well very infrequently do you get somebody approaching a game from the second time so you have to you have to be that player one you have to um be able to empathize and kind of go all right well maybe i should adjust this for the good of the players and and that's definitely what happened in maxima was when we were when we were done kind of putting it together uh, and we released it to the to the rest of the team. You know, the team had been working on and playing it, but they hadn't really sat down and played the whole thing all the way through. And when they got done playing it, they all came running to me, and they were like, this game's too hard. And I'm like, you guys are all a bunch of babies. This game is not too hard. And they're like, it is, it is, we can't do it. And they would kind of complain and, and whinge, and I'm like, all right, I should listen to what they say. So I went back and kind of tweaked everything. And then I was like, "All right, how's this?" And then I, they were like, "Oh yeah, okay, it's it's fine. We like it." And then we released it to the world, and everyone went, "It's too hard." <laughs> so, oh, man. you know, on one hand, uh, you know, that's I, I guess one of the things that people love about the game is that it is really hard. But I, but I ultimately I learned a very important lesson. I learned about the designer blinders, but I also learned. Um, that there's a difference between being difficult and challenging, mm-hmm. and you have to respect that with the players. Yeah. Uh, and so this is something that as game creators, we need to be aware of at all times. To um, it, There's a fine balance between making a game too hard uh, and making a game just fun enough and challenging enough to be playable. Yeah, so like, I'm king of bringing up these references, but like Bloodborne, you know, Demon Souls, Dark Souls are very difficult games. And then yeah. anything Ninja Gaiden past the Super Nintendo is just too hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, I mean, the, the funny thing is that those kind of games, particularly the Ninja Gaidens and yeah. the Super Meat Boys and the Mega Man 9s and the Dark Souls, 
those are all, you know, that term massacre, right? That yeah, mix yeah. between masochist, masochist and, hardcore. and hardcore. So it's it's kind of evolved into this old genre. Yeah. But to be honest, um, I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but those games just aren't for me. After a while, I just kind of get worn down by them, yeah. and i I don't want to I don't want to buy a game to not be able to finish it. I want to be able to play it and enjoy it and then tell my friends hey larry hey brandon mm. you know these games are uh, awesome you should buy them because yeah. in the end we're kind of here to sell games that's i mean that's we're ultimately making games as a business and we're going to get better sales and better responses if people can finish our games and come away with it with a positive feeling yeah if you can get more people to invest the time into completing the game they're going to get more value out of buying the game. Like they spend 60 bucks on your AAA game and they played, let's say, 10 hours, 12 hours versus they spend the 60 bucks, your game is too hard and they quit. They've spent 60 bucks on two hours, right? And so yeah. that value just doesn't add up. And so I can see that deterring a lot of people from making those types of purchases. So, yeah. Yeah, if they quit, if they quit your game, you failed. Right. You know, that's just the bottom line. So, quick fun question for you. Was there a game, besides anything that you have mentioned already, is there a game that's in your backlog like, damn, that game just, that was one of the ones I quit on. It just was too much for me. Oh, games that I've played that were too hard? Yeah, if you have one or two that you can recall. Well, I, if I quit a game, it's there's various reasons. So, for example, um, as much as I liked it, uh, I couldn't finish Portal 2 because it made me want to barf. Mm. Uh, you know, so those, you know, any of the games that are those first person ones where they kind of throw you all over the place. Mm. And I, I'm the type that I get um, the cold sweats and, you know, the headache. And mm. and then I'm I feel like garbage for the rest of the day. If not, I like I don't know, I was playing something a, a little while ago and I literally it took me like two days to recover just because it was um, it was just making me feel so gross. Uh, um you're definitely not going to play the VR version of Portal, it seems like. Yeah, you know, I'm not. Well, I have my own opinions about VR. We can talk about that later. Um, but as for something that's too hard, well, it, once again, it's a fine line between what's too hard and what I suck at. Um, so, like, I, I really I, I picked up Star Wars Battlefront. Okay. Uh, I got he bought a PS4 just for that. I love Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I'm I'm okay with first person shooters, but that game is kicking my ass all over the place. It's really frustrating. And I don't know if it's just because I suck at it or or I'm just I don't know what. But um yeah, I'm just I'm not I'm not doing that great at it and it's frustrating because I wanna play more, I wanna, you know, spend more time with it. It's Star Wars, it's awesome, it's there's a lot of great things going on in it, but if I'm getting my ass handed to me every game, it's just it's not that fun. Mm. Mm-hmm. And are you playing single player and or multiplayer? Oh, I'm I'm playing everything. I, th- there's barely single player in that game, so most of it is multiplayer. I found though that I um as much as I love the spectacle, of the big forty man matches, yeah. I I have better luck when I'm doing twelve player. So I I it gives me uh I guess it's less people to like constantly be shooting me in the head. Yeah, gotcha. You know, just find a corner and just camp. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but then you don't get any points if you do that. Yeah, but and your plus, ratio be awesome. <laughs> that's true. But their the problem is their sniper rifle. Their sniper rifles are like one shot things, so I can't one just kills. hide. Yeah, well, you have to, you only get one shot on them. They're 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 yeah. you they have to like recharge or some. It's not like Team Fortress where you can like go blasting away with them with a the sniper rifle. Yeah, yeah I still got to play that game. It's good. It it's at the very least, it's worth playing. Just to, I mean, it's beautiful. But play yeah. it on a, play it on a. You know, if you have like a big screen or you have access to one at work or something, play it. The bigger the screen, the better, because it's the little guy. Like when you see a little white stormtrooper running against the snow, it's like you can barely <laughs> pick him out. It's like a super hard target to hit. Yeah. At least for me, that's I part of the problem. But he's wearing white and running around on the snow. It's 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 a great time to be. I'm kind of going off track, but it's a great time to be a Star Wars fan. Oh yeah, right uh, now. Like, what serious. is Respawn the next one making the Star Wars Respawn game? Who else? Star Wars game. That's uh, Amy Hennig's group, right? The guys that used to do uh, Uncharted. Yeah, Uncharted. No, yeah. 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 No, Amy Hennig is the one in um, in NorCal with Redwood Shores. This right. one's the Respawn guys, the old Modern Warfare guys, the Titanfall oh. guys. The Titanfall guys. Yeah, they have so it's two different groups. Star Wars game. 
Oh, nice. So no no detail on the Amy Hennig one. I think that's mostly going to be like a single player experience. It has to be. She's a writer, so yeah. I don't want to just label her as a writer, but you know what I mean. Like obviously she's quite talented mostly uncharted, mostly yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's what she's not for. Them. Yeah, story based stuff. Yep. Well, whatever. You know, I'm. I'm <laughs> they've been. You know, there haven't been too many bad game. You know, remember Star Wars went. You know, there weren't – well, Star Wars has been always kind of hit miss, right? At least it's not yeah. like Batman where there were like a million lousy games and then finally we got, you know, the a couple Arkham of good series, yeah. Well, we got Lego first, right? The Lego Batman is – I miss Lego Batman altogether, but you're right. That one did get good reviews. Well, the game was amazing. If you're a, if you're a comic book fan, the mm-hmm. Lego Batman one is maybe even a little better than the Arkham ones are just for, for like accuracy. Okay. Right. I mean, come on! The game has Killer Moth in it, for God's sake. Well, I I, I missed that one altogether. Like I, I got to play it, man. I haven't Even played though- any of the Lego games, and it's not because I'm like, oh, that's for kids. I just I'm like, oh, World of Warcraft is out. Let me go see what that's about. And then I missed like eight years of fun games. Yeah, and look and look what you have to show for it. Eight years later. <laughs> oh man. So I'm gonna say what you said. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> oh man. So I have a question for you, Scott. Obviously, you know, you're excited about meeting the guy who designed Galaga and he gave you the hand-designed manuscript on the same yellow copy paper. Uh, I'm assuming you've gotten to see the game industry basically go from a seed to the maturity that it is today, you know, at this stage. How do you feel about the status quo of game development right now? Like, is there anything specific where you're like, man, we're kind of missing the boat and in this area or... You know, is there something that you're really proud of or maybe something that you're, you wish was different? Like if you could just maybe talk on those two things. Sure. Well, the things that I think are, are uh, not a miss per se, but well, I, I, I feel bad that the console industry isn't quite what it used to be. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I mean, you guys remember what the early 2000s was like you know around playstation 2 playstation 3 things were were, things were kind of humming you know things were going along and and uh i think that um i think that the eighth generation you know the playstation uh or seventh generation really like the the wii and the xbox and some of those things kind of particularly downloadable kind of threw um the industry for a loop and and definitely you know mobile gaming like kind of broadsided everybody nobody was nobody was really expecting that to take off yeah man. Um, and so i i don't feel like that the console industry has quite recovered from it mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of studios have have gone away you know we just heard about avalanche the guys that did uh infinity disney yeah, infinity, disney and, infinity. And, and i worked with those guys back in the day on tack games and stuff like that uh and it's too bad because they're really good developers and they don't deserve to but that's the part of they're just a casualty of the of the business um the the business environment no. um so that's that's a real bummer i'm 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 a little worried about the console world and kind of where it's headed mm. um and uh and i um i don't think gimmicks like um motion controls and uh vr is necessarily going to uh, save it. Mm-hmm. I think it just needs really good, you know, just keep making really good games with story and gameplay uh, that, you know, capture people's imagination and uh, immerse them in these worlds like no other entertainment can do. Yeah. Now, that said, um, uh, you know, not trying to put any blame on the mobile game scene, but I also think that the mobile scene really opened doors up for a lot of people. I, I love seeing what's going on in the mobile scene. I love seeing what's going on in the indie game scene. I love that downloadable games have given a voice to people that maybe wouldn't have ever gotten a chance. I mean, you know, now we're all veterans of AAA development, but what's really nice is knowing that if we if we got the gumption and the finances together, uh, we could – you know, go striking out on our own and try and make our own thing, yeah. right? I mean, that's that is now an option, uh, and it's particularly exciting for students. Uh, I tell them all that they're like, "Oh man, I want to get a job at Sony. I want to get a job at EA. I want to get a job at wherever." 
And I'm like, why don't you just make your own damn game? You know, go <laughs> go do it yourself because yeah. now, right now, is the perfect time for you to do it. It's yeah. you're young. You you know you probably don't need a lot of money to survive on. Take a risk and and because it could pay off. And I and I happen to know a, a fair amount of students that have have done just that, and they're they're doing pretty well for themselves. That's good to you hear. Know, not, you know, no one is no one is a uh, uh, living on their own island. Uh, but, uh, but they're definitely able to make the games that they want to make. And I think that that's the thing that we as professionals in the nineties and the early two thousands, that just wasn't even an option for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was no way that you can just go off on your own and just find a publisher for the game that no one has heard of from the person that no one has heard of. Dude, yeah, yeah, there was a little and, bit of and, that in the shareware days, but that was it, it was gone for a long time after that. Yeah, I mean the only the only other time that this really had happened was during the arcade days. Yeah, right. Mm. Like you know, oh, I want to make a game about a guy who runs on burgers and drops them in the stacks, you know, or burger time. Hey, I wanna, yeah, exactly. Or hey, I want to make a you know a game about a swearing orange guy who jumps up and down on a pyramid. You know, it's like. Uber. Yep, there you go. So, you know, like we're seeing a, a, such a level of freedom uh, now for, you know, all subject matter is acceptable. Have you guys, you know, have you guys played like Undertale or um, uh, what else are some crazy ones that are out there? You know, like uh, uh, I Am Toast. Have you played that? Yeah, I heard of I Am Toast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's all types of, I mean, like if I had gone to uh, THQ and said, I want to make a game about being a piece of toast. They would have kicked me right out of the out of the meeting room. Yep. And and I'll tell you, I sometimes I did pitch stuff kind of like that, not as not as uh, clever as the toast one, but but yeah, they they I got a lot of ideas got shot down that I think would probably work now for um uh for games. As a matter of fact, um in the back of um uh, Level Up, my my game design book, uh, the design for Farm Wars was an idea that I had been trying to get made for years and nobody would make it. I'm sure I could make it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like counterculture for games is like a huge enough niche that it's worthwhile to give it a shot because enough titles have been like, you know what, I'm just whatever. And they put it out and it's like, no, it's not whatever. It's actually profitable. Look, it's a thing now. Congratulations. You're rich. Yeah, it's it's nice um, that uh, it's – it's not a hundred percent, but definitely talent and creativity uh, is a much better um, barometer nowadays than it maybe it was a while ago. Yeah, I'll give you that for sure. Definitely. <clears throat> well, uh, Mr. Scott Rogers, I'm looking at the clock, and lo and behold, it is 57 minutes and 11 seconds in. That is close enough to our one hour mark, but I'm going to ask you one last question before I close this out because part of what we do here at Game Dev Unchained is we like to talk about the fact that you know you don't have to be tied to your nine to five as your only way to survive as a game developer. You can use your skills and expertise and branch out into other areas. Now, you've already said that you teach as well, but you've also said that you have released a book, you know, and I believe you released a second book because I own them both. Um, where were you in your life where you decided, you know what, I'm going to take this knowledge and start giving it out, and it turned into a revenue stream for you? Like, had you written a book before Level Up? I, I, to my knowledge, that was your first book. Yeah, it was my first book. Um, that and then came. Bed Bug, by the way, your comic book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah Bed Bug. Okay, uh, so well, no, no worries. Thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> uh, Level Up came from um, I, I used to go a lot to the Game Developers Conference. And one year I went, and I didn't feel like any of the um, uh, any of the. I had kind of heard it all. I felt like I had heard everything everybody was talking about. And I was I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, you know, if I if I keep coming to these things in good conscience, I really should start giving something back rather than just listening to all these people. So the next year I gave a talk. Uh, it was about um, designing uh, bosses for video games, and it was very popular. Uh, so I was like, oh, that was fun. Um, I should do it again. What yeah. should I talk about this time? And two things that I love are uh, level design and Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And so I gave a talk about level design in Disneyland, and uh, it was very popular as well. Uh, and as a result of it, I got contacted by a publisher. Uh, so keep in mind, this is a very rare thing. This is sure. not – 
something happens to people every day. Uh, but essentially they got in touch with me and they said, um, Hey, uh, we heard about your talk. Uh, it sounded really cool. Would you like to write a book? And the, the people that contacted me, uh, was a company called Wiley and sons. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're the guys that do the for dummies books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, Oh, do you want me to write the game design for dummies book? And they go, no, no, we want the Scott Rogers book of game design. And that, that is even more of a, of a, uh, of a, it doesn't, that doesn't happen every day. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't happen to most people. Uh, so they were very kind enough to give me this platform on which I could write. And, and to be honest, up to that point, I had been thinking about it and kind of threatening other developers that I'd work with that I would write all this stuff down that I was telling them because they weren't, uh, they were forgetting it weeks later after I told them about it. Uh, so I had kind of an outline in mind anyway. Uh, and so just the stars kind of aligned and, uh, and I wrote this book about, uh, it's called Level Up, the Guide to Great Video Game Design. And it's now in its second edition. You can find it anywhere books are sold, like Amazon. And, and if you go to Barnes and Noble or whatever, you just request it. They, I'm sure they can order it. And it's available in a bunch of different languages. I think it's in like seven languages now. Man. Uh, and, uh, and so then after that, um, uh, I was like, well, mobile gaming, this was kind of in 2009, right when mobile gaming was started, starting. And I was like, well, I should write a book about that because that's something that's different enough from regular level uh, game design uh, to warrant its own material. So I wrote Swipe This, the guide to great touchscreen uh, game design. And that, you know, kind of focuses on all the intricacies of designing, you know, the differences, because you guys know there's a huge difference in how you design a console game or a computer game yeah. uh, to a touchscreen game. So uh, those are both really good resources for anybody who um, wants to learn how to do game design, or even if you've already been doing game design and you want a, a good reminder of some, maybe some basic ideas that you've forgotten about. Uh, and there's a lot of amusing pictures in them. So if you like pictures, there's something to look at. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Level Up has the best chili recipe you'll ever find in a game design book. Yeah. <laughs> Level, Up, <laughs> Level Up is a very interesting read for me. And I, I love it because the charm is there, the knowledge is there. But then also, uh, not that anyone needs to know this, but anyone suffering with ADD like yours truly, it definitely helps when it's broken up and you get pictures and you get you know, the little anecdotes that isn't just like just a straight up wall of text. A lot of game design books that I've gone through have just been title, heading, and then words forever, you know? Mm. So it, it, these books that he's written have really helped me, I, I guess, understand and get through them a lot easier than any of the other books. I recommend them to all the students that I meet, especially Level Up. Level Up is the first book I recommend, actually. And he didn't pay me for this. Uh, this is actually how Scott and I met. I went to the book signing for Level Up. And, uh, you know, introduce myself, but I was just a big, I, I loved the book and I was so glad to have a copy and it was personalized. So, yeah. 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 Well, like I say in the book, if you meet me at a game design conference or a taco shop or something, I'll be happy to sign your book for you. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and the first edition one that Larry has is those are the ones that I actually would design levels in. Yeah. He designed a, you did a Mario level for me. I still have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So. All right, well, now I'll do the, the closing segment. And what's awesome is, like, you've already had, like, the platform to plug, but i got to give you the official Brandon and I will be quiet. So, Scott, thank you very much for being a part of this episode. And as customary, we always shut up and let you plug anything. So if there's anything else that you'd like to do or a shout-out or just special note or one last piece of advice, the audience is yours. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Plug away. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It was really great to talk to you about uh some things I haven't thought about in a few years. Um, but that said, uh, uh, we've talked about console games and we've talked about mobile games and, and the books that I've written on those. Um, but I have some new exciting stuff coming up that uh -oh. maybe your listeners would be interested in. Oh, nice. um, as I've been, um, uh, you know, as kind of uh, I've been doing more teaching and that, I, I find myself drawn towards um, one of my first loves, which is board gaming. Uh, and so, um, uh, this fall, uh, so 2016, uh, I have, um, uh, proud to say that, uh, I have a board game, uh, coming out my first published board game. It's called Ray Guns and Rocket Ships. Oh, nice. So if you happen to like, uh, 1930s 
spacemen and aliens blowing the crap out of each other in rocket ships and and boarding each other's ships and uh, and all ty- you know that kind of Flash Gordon Star Wars stuff, uh, but in board game form. It was it was actually a video game idea that I had that um, I was like, well, at this rate, I'm never going to get it made as a video game, but I can make it by myself as a board game. Uh, and so this is an area that as game designers um, to not count out is tabletop. I mean, particularly nowadays, just like how mobile games have become really popular, uh, board gaming as well. There's a lot of great opportunities for game designers in the tabletop space. Uh, so um, uh, I say it's a fair uh, bet to say that I'm going to be doing more of these things and and you'll probably be seeing more uh, tabletop related uh, things, projects coming from me, you know, whether they're games or who knows, maybe a book or something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's kind of my, uh, current, uh, obsession. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it's all games, right? It's all, it's all good. And there's a lot to, a lot to learn from all types of games. So, uh, so if you're out there and you're a gamer, um, play as many games as you can. Uh, and, uh, and you know, there's, there's worse ways to, to make a living, right? Make it, make games. If you can make your living making a game, you're not really working at all. Yeah, definitely. Um, shit, man. Uh, excuse my language. Mr. Scott Rogers, very happy to have you on the podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure. Of course, you know, I'm a longtime fan and I can't wait for any new stuff coming your way or coming our way. So I'm definitely going to check out Ray Guns and Rocket Chips. So yeah, that's from IDW Games, by the way. Thank you. I was just about to ask for a link for me to follow and the rest of the audience. Uh, since I'm talking, I got the mic. Larry Charles, good night. This is Brandon Fam. See you next week. And Scott Rogers. <laughs> yeah, and, and me, Scott Rogers, signing off. Thanks for listening. Good night. <laughs>